it's here, Radio Sunday, and we have great expectations of people ringing in to donate and show their support for the station and all we stand for. I won't be in this studio live, I am broadcasting from home, but there are volunteers eager to answer phones from our listeners. All donations will be announced on air next week. When you donate, you can say you do or do not want your name broadcast. But that phone number, 9419-8377, 9419-8377. As you're probably aware, I've been broadcasting on 3CR since 1986. Bit scratchy for a couple of years till I found my feet, but since then it's been a wonderful experience to speak with so many people dedicated in any number of areas of life and struggle. And I can only hope that will continue for many more years. So enough of me. Please donate. Every little counts towards the large total of 250000 to keep 3CR on air for yet another year. But today, as usual, we're travelling. First to Bougainville, where the vultures are circling, looking at a paper prepared by Jubilee Australia titled Scramble for Resources, the International Race for Bougainville's Mineral Riches. Then south to Colombia, the results of the first round of elections. Then back north to West Papua, Albanese in Indonesia, more of the same, betrayal of West Papua under Indonesian occupation. And here in Victoria's forests, if you're found in the forests, you shouldn't be there. One year in jail, $21,000 fine. And these are for people who are in there trying to save the forest and the flora and fauna from destruction. But Kevin Healy is present for his week that was and to encourage you to donate. 94198377. I do hope we hear from you today. A week, journalist, now when the socialist government's commitment to take climate change, if there is such a thing, seriously got off to a big start as it sought to extract lots and lots more gas and coal, told us it was imperative that coal-fired power stations be relocate, rebooted, which seemed to be giving the boot to its climate change promises, but then politicians, gas, a natural mix and their priorities were proven spot on by a lot of fossil energy supremo Jeff Dimier the Lightsey who told us closing coal-fired power stations is committing economic suicide. See it's the economy stupid and how dare activist investors in a hostile political environment Jeff blame for much of the problem interfere with that political environment putting the earth's environment ahead of profit environment. Thank goodness we've got Jeff to set us straight on that. But the real problem showing how Demir Jeff is, is the country has been swamped with renewables which make coal uncompetitive, he said. So the answer, according to Jeff, is more coal, more uncompetitive coal. Uh, can we spot the odd flaw in Jeff's argument? The sundry fossil giants, try as they might, just can't see a way to prevent soaring energy prices, which certainly help their economy, stupid. Dismissing irresponsible and stupid suggestions like the fossils belong to the country and the government should just force them to provide it at a cheaper rate. What nonsense. 
on which thus far the new Minister for Fossils, Chris Bow and the Capital, is living up to his name. So the problem is, we assumed, that Trubler was he is suffering from an acute shortage of gas. Oh, oh no, no, the great corporate behemoths laughed at my naivete. We'll be providing gas all over the world for decades. Uh, but, but then we sputtered, but they were too busy drilling to hear us. On those who are filing their power bills and soaring costs of living a bit of a problem, the spate of buy now, pay later caring entrepreneurs concerned solely with those who actually can't afford the item, can obtain the item, have been promoted as a boon to their customers who have found the buy now bit a huge advantage and so easy. What these companies are now discovering is that the pay later bit is not such an advantage, not nearly so easy. In fact, so hard, and doesn't that come as a huge surprise? They are not, they assure us, payday lenders nor traditional credit providers. They are, um, well, pay now, pay later, and those who are finding the pay later bit more difficult than the buy now bit are also finding their liabilities, their debt soaring, as they can't meet repayment deadlines. But repeat, they are not payday lenders. Though it's difficult to comprehend why buy now as can't meet their commitments as they are ever smiling, ever happy, jerry, uh, jerry heavy prices of relentless ubiquitous advertisements, heavy prices. Norman said the economy is in good shape and consumers should be able to cope with the interest rate rises. Speaking personally, I could afford whatever I want. Jerry spoke happily for the lowest of low paid. Uh, so with the economy in good shape, workers can finally get a substantial wage rise, Jerry. Not that good shape, but there's good shape and, and good shape. So, sorry workers, the time is still not right. Oh, and I hope no one thinks happy, happy, selfless Jerry had some ulterior motive like boosting his company's shares as households feel their economy is not in such good shape. Yet, despite sensible arguments by caring employers like our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Trublowasi Industry Profits Group that we cannot control inflation if the prices of labour keep pace with the prices caring employers charge us, we are now at risk of a wages and inflation and interest rates death spiral. Innes warned how serious a wage rise would be. Evil unions have displayed their refusal to accept reality by suggesting it was time to look at the other side of the ledger. ETU Acting Secretary Michael Wright reflected their ignorance and how's this for a lack of concern for the greatest little economic order of them all? The starting point for tackling inflation, he raved, surely must be price and profit restraint rather than requiring workers to keep taking it in the neck. Wages have to give up with the cost of living or how our whole society gets poorer. Oh, have we ever heard such nonsense? Didn't he listen to Innes' timely warning? And anyway, the good news at least is that the caring business class will not get poorer despite heaps of their customers having less buying power. And that... Sally McManus of the ACTU threw up that profits had increased by 21.6% as, as if that means caring employers could pay the lowest of low paid the crippling dollar an hour they're trying to extort from those caring employers in the lowest of low paid case. 
And don't they understand that bigger and bigger profits are the very raison d'etre of the delicate flower that is the economy, providing the wages the caring employers can't afford? Caring employers also assure us the problem of slow wages growth can only be addressed by workers working harder, increasing productivity. And the bloody ACTU also pointed out that productivity had increased substantially, as if that was enough forcing the poor caring employers to inform us they believed it was an exceptional situation. So sorry again workers, like the economy in good shape, increased productivity is not increased productivity enough to warrant a pay rise. Yes, sadly the time is still not right. So keep working at it, pull your fingers out and don't we have to feel for the poor caring employers, although a few clues as to in how good shape must be the economy and what levels of increased productivity would warrant a wage rise would mean the time is right. The exciting Caring Business Evil Union Summit the Socialists have promised has the caring employers telling us top of the agenda must be giving the boot the boot, the better off overall test, because that is clearly a barrier to a good shape economy and increased productivity. Uh, so how can workers be better off if you make them worse off? Again, we displayed our week that was naivete. Obviously, spokesperson Charles Bloated spoke for them. Making workers worse off will ensure they can be better off. Obviously, otherwise caring employers wouldn't pursue the change so relentlessly. One of the world's filthiest rich of the filthy rich employers, Elon Musk, has decreed that if his workers want to work from home, they must first work in their workplace for at least 40 hours a week, and then they can do the rest of their work from home. 40 hours and then, in terms of their lifestyle, can we spot the odd problem in Elon's expectations? Oh, and Elon will be pleased to hear that the much-publicised plan for a minimum global corporate tax rate is on hold and will not be introduced next year. One of our former favourites, Matthias Rotten-Tuda, announced in his current capacity running the OECD. Some of us might have thought this year would be too big a, big a delay, but Matthias assured us he expects it to happen. We can be sure the filthiest rich are shaking in their Swiss leather boots. Meanwhile, big supremo Anthony Orbinguzi, headed for Indonesia and other people's business with a bevy of the filthiest rich of the filthy rich, true blue Aussie and transnational corporate barons, to stitch up a bit of business with Indonesia in telling true blue Aussie, we should slow down in our hostility to evil China, try to ease rather than exacerbate regional tension. And as a quid pro quo, true blue Aussie obviously would have would have, well, no, no, maybe a bit too sensitive to raise the matter of Indonesia in occupation and invasion and persecution of West Papua and its people. Certainly the caring corporate leaders would have advised that there was no need to raise something so less important than stitching up a few business deals. And anyway, the resource beer moths raping and polluting West Papua and defended by Indonesia in train killers are quite content with life in West Papua. Finally, in the week that was sport, and we're recording this pre-game, pre but we predicted that yesterday's game would end up in a half-time brawl with Melbourne players bashing the proverbial out of each other. 
And a finally, finally, speaking of her most gracious, very important item in the Lord Rupert of Wapping Media, that after the troop in the colour last week, the royal cousins had a cousin's lunch, but, but... And here's the big news of the week, listener. The Duke and Duchess of Sussex were not there. Spend a week thinking about that one. While thinking, great news, her most gracious gave the week that was an exclusive interview to tell us that if people want to hear of matters slightly more important than royal and related crap, then they should donate to the 3CR Radiothon. When I asked her most gracious to put her money where her mouth was, uh, the line went dead. Uh, so it's up to us, listener. Good afternoon. Keep community strong. Hey there, it's Scott Ludlam, and it's that Radiothon time of year. The good folk at 3CR keep our airwaves alive with music and current affairs and ideas and politics and story and song 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. And this is our chance to help them out. Hop on over to 3cr.org.au and help keep community strong. It's never been a better time to support our community broadcasters around the country and 3CR is one of the best of them. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Good morning and good afternoon, listeners. It's on again. After three years, the mighty Concrete Gang pull-up. Monday, July 11th, down in the Old St Kilda, 14 Fitzroy Street at the Cross. The Concrete Gang pull-up, 11am in the morning, onwards. $20 ticket can get you a Guernsey. 20 bucks gets you a ticket in the raffle, bit of food and entertainment from the great Phil Parra band. Drinks at bar prices, but it also gives you a chance to win a uh, $500 voucher in the door price. So make sure you get your ticket. It's going to be bigger than Texas. We're all going to be there, make some money for 3CR, keep them on there and keep going on. And as we say, dare to struggle, dare to win. If you don't fight, you lose. The Concrete Gang, Monday, July the 11th, 11am at the Cross, 14 Fitzroy Street, St Kilda. Be there. We faced deregistration, it backfired in the face. We're not fooled by arbitration, we won't stay in our place. We hit the bosses hard and fast to win and keep our game. Mantengamos la fuerza en la comunidad. Keep community strong. El Scramble for resources, the international race for Bougainville's mineral wealth. This is the title of a paper by the Jubilee Australia Research Centre. And today I'm speaking with the spokesperson for this report, Five Strawn. Can we first identify the organisation which has prepared this extensive and valuable report? Sure. So Jubilee Australia is a research and advocacy organisation and we focus on Australian corporates and Australian government behaviour in the Asia-Pacific. So the aim is to support strong accountability and governance in the region. 
The second area I'd like to focus on prior to looking at the paper and its recommendations to establish just what is at stake when the mineral resources of Bougainville are discussed. Can we look at the topography and geography of the autonomous region of Bougainville and what is known about the riches there? Yeah, that's right. So um, Bougainville is an autonomous region um, within Papua New Guinea. It's a series of islands, an archipelago that's just near the Solomon Islands. And it's an area that's absolutely stunning with its biodiversity, um, forests and its, its natural beauty. Um, It's also an area with quite a large um, number of minerals. So there are copper and gold deposits that have been found on Bougainville. And most significantly, um, Bougainville is the site of the Panguna mine, which um, at the time of its operation was one of the most valuable mines in the world. Um, It was an enormous copper and gold mine run by a subsidiary of Rio Tinto from 1972 to 1989. So that Panguna mine was then closed when the war happened in Bougainville. So there was a a significant civil war in Bougainville, uh, partly sparked by the mine. And the the mine closed at that time, but it still remains. So the mine um, was never formally cleaned up and the mine site still remains as a, a huge scar on the landscape in Bougainville. And I'd imagine the disaster of that Panguna mine and for the people, not only them, but for the environment themselves, has influenced the work done in this paper? Yeah, that's right. Obviously, Panguna was a huge environmental disaster. Over the course of the mine, around a billion tonnes of mining waste was dumped into the Kaurang and Jabba rivers, and that process has continued to pollute the waterways to this day. So not just pollution caused at the time of the mine, but, but that mine waste has continued to cause ongoing pollution. So from our perspective, the Panguna mine really is, I guess, a cautionary tale um, about mining done very, very badly in the Bougainvillean context. And that's why for people within Bougainville, um, when they're thinking about whether they might reopen the Panguna mine or open new mining ventures on Bougainville, obviously they're more aware than most of the potential pitfalls if mining isn't done in a responsible and environmentally sustainable way. We're now at the stage where a number of the traditional owners from the area have agreed with the autonomous government to restart the mine with encouragement Mm -hmm. Of, as I said, the new government, is there concern that this decision was carried under extreme pressure from perhaps P&G, perhaps the mining companies, the Australian government? Um, I can't necessarily speak to that directly, but what I would say is I think looking at the recent agreement, so as you, you're absolutely right, Jan, that the, there was a recent announcement by the government in early May um, that the Panguna landowners have come into an agreement with the government to reopen the mine. But I see this as the first step in what's likely to be quite a long process. So I don't necessarily think we're going to see the Panguna mine opening in the very near future. I think there's likely to be quite a lot that has to happen before that mine can open. And in particular, the landowners and the government have agreed that that the process will be will begin by setting up an entity to be jointly owned by the Panguna landowners and the government and that that entity will own the mine. But again, setting up an entity like that and then sourcing investors with the right enough capital, mining operators, it's all actually going to be a, a very lengthy process as well as the process of you know, securing broad, uh, broad-based consultation and consent. I guess the other thing to say is in terms of the, the rationale for reopening the mine, there are obviously 
a, a diversity of views within Panguna and you know we're aware that there are many people within the area who don't support mining and there are also many within the area who are interested in exploring uh, reopening the mine in, in one way or another. Concerns around Bougainville's independence have also fueled speculation and discussion on whether or not to, to reopen the Panguna mine. Uh, with, um, with Bougainville obviously moving towards independence from PNG, uh, there's questions around where revenue will come from. And I mean, we'd argue that revenue could come from a wide range of sources, including agriculture, fisheries, tourism, and other things. But um, obviously, the Panguna mine has been on people's minds as a potential way to earn revenue for, for the new nation. And of course, lessons to be learnt from that long struggle against the mine, then its closure. Now to compensate the many, many people for the health issues and the destruction of their land and their sea. Yeah, that's right. And um, as you'd be aware, um, the Human Rights Law Centre worked with a number of landowners in Panguna to bring um, a case uh, before the OECD National Contact Point seeking for, for Rio Pinto and the former operator of the mine to, you know, to clean up the mess that was left um, and to help to sort of restore um, from from the damage that was left. So absolutely, I think that's a, that's a really key question and I think that's a sort of, it's a separate question from the question of whether the people might choose to reopen the mine again with a new company, but it's also an important part of the, the picture. And you've identified that there are many companies who are now circling to get into this issue. Apart from Bougainville Copper Limited and Rio Tinto, how many others have you identified? Yeah, well, just to clarify, we, um, to our knowledge, we, we don't, haven't seen any indication that Rio is looking to reopen the mine, but Bougainville Copper Limited is now separate from Rio Tinto. So um, Rio Tinto gave its shares in Bougainville Copper Limited to the Bougainvillian and PNG governments in 2016, and so um, BCL is uh, still is one of the players that's looking to reopen the mine. But we've also tracked another six six to eight companies that are operating in Bougainville looking to either get the mining lease on Panguna or to get exploration licenses or mining leases on other parts of the island. That includes uh, somewhere between three and five companies in the Panguna area. And the reason for that vagueness is that companies aren't always 100% transparent about what they want to do. So in our report, we cover um, a number of companies, three companies that have explicitly talked about their interest in reopening the Panguna mine and are actively engaging with landowners there and, and trying to reopen the mine. But we also attract a number of companies who are working in the areas around the Panguna mine and it's not quite clear what it is that they are ultimately looking for in terms of where it is that they want to mine. And how difficult or easy is it to track their environmental records over the years that they have been mining in countries other than the country that they're from? Yeah, it's a great question because it varies significantly. And one of the challenges that we've really had in doing this report is that a number of the companies that we came across who are looking to try and get an exploration license or a mining lease don't even have so much as a website. Finding out information about their corporate structures involves, you know, buying company searches and really doing kind of deep searches on the individuals involved to try and trace information about those individuals and and what ventures they might have been involved in before, Um, but actually finding information, the kind of information that if you're a landowner in Bougainville, you might want, for example, as you say, 
what's the environmental record of this company, you know, what proof do we have that they're going to be good stewards of our environment if we do let them in. That kind of information is often difficult to find. For some of the bigger players that are looking to open the mine, they have been, um, you know, they have mining ventures in other countries and there's a little bit of information that they might provide through investor reports and annual reports that can let people know what's going on. But a, a very large number of the companies that are seeking to, to get mining rights in Bougainville really, it's, it's, they have very little publicly available information that anyone's able to find. So it really, there really is a huge lack of transparency there, particularly for local communities who might want to know more. And it's a huge pressure, isn't it, on the local people to be confronted with mining companies that have got so much expertise and and the, maybe the villagers, you know, this might be, they might know a great deal about the outside world, but suddenly you've got these people coming in and wanting to develop their land. Yeah, that's right. There is a big uh, kind of information imbalance and, yeah, a risk there because um, in, I mean, obviously, Bougainville, it's got an extremely rich culture and strong governance structures. And, you know, the people who are living in the area of Panguna or other parts of Bougainville are, you know, fantastic at, you know, governing themselves and know what it is that they want. But there can be a huge challenge where, for example, there might be limited access to internet or limited access to information. Companies coming in, um, you know, making presentations or um, presenting things in a particular way where it's very difficult for the communities to go and get independent advice or a second opinion to check that out. So, yeah, I would say there's that kind of imbalance of resources, imbalance of information that makes it all the more important that companies should be, um, you know, behaving to the highest standards of ethics and responsibility. And as we've outlined in our report, we haven't really seen that in the picture, in the corporate conduct that we've seen on Bougainville. And, of course, to bring that balance in, it often means that you've got to bring people in from the outside and then it doesn't become so much the decision of the local people because you've brought other people in and they're making decisions for them or helping them make those decisions. Yeah, I think it is a real challenge. I mean, you know, as I mentioned, in the Panguna area, landowners and the government have agreed that they will want to, if they're going to reopen the mine, they'll want to do that with a locally owned entity. But the reality is um, opening the Panguna mine or, or starting any other mine is extremely expensive. You know, in the Panguna mine, for example, costs could potentially exceed a billion dollars if they were to do a, a responsible and environmentally friendly tailings management system. And so when you're looking at costs like that, it's inevitable that communities will need to partner with investors or companies from overseas who are then going to be coming in, you know, with prioritising the interests of investors um, and with, a, a you know, quite a different perspective. And that's why one of the things that we've called for in our report is a mandatory human rights due diligence mechanism in Australia because we recognise that companies right now don't have many mechanisms to hold them to account for what they do overseas. They're beholden to act in the best interests of their shareholders here, but they're not necessarily under any obligation to be acting in the best public interest of the people in the countries in which they're working. But when mining is so critically important and it's so critically important that that be done in a way that's environmentally friendly and respects free prior and informed consent. That's essential to the people on Bougainville or really any other country where Australian companies are looking to mine. Those interests should really be front and centre for companies when they're engaging in that. 
And whatever is decided, it has to fit in with the system of land ownership and customary traditions? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, as you say, land ownership in, um, in Bougainville is, is customarily owned um, and there are quite complex structures that govern land ownership. So, um, yeah, that's obviously any reopening of mining has to involve free prior and informed consent from those customary landowners. So, you know, that means broad-based consent from a range of people in the project area, that that consent is informed, that they have opportunities for independent advice and to get um, information from a range of sources and, and make an assessment on that basis. There were changes to the mining law on Bougainville a couple of years ago. Has that made it easier for the mining companies? Uh, the Mining Act came in in 2015 and then there were some proposed changes in 2019 um, that we've actually covered in our report linked to one of the um, one of the companies seeking to mine. In the end, those changes didn't go through in 2020. But the Mining Act in Bougainville is itself still pretty fresh, so it's only seven years old. And in some ways, it, it creates opportunities, I think, for companies. And in other ways, it creates opportunities for landowners. I know when um, Bougainville's uh, Mining Act in, came out in 2015, Jubilee was among the groups that raised some concerns about some of the ways that that act operates and in particular um, that elements of that act appear to be fairly uh, pro-mining. It's sort of there are penalties, for example, if community members take any action that might damage a mine site or blockade a mine or things like that and those penalties are fairly fairly severe. The flip side of that is that the Mining Act does give some power to customary landowners. It's not a complete veto, but it does give some element of decision, put some element of decision making into the hands of customary landowners. So they do need to consent before a mining company can come and, and build a mine and that and that is positive. What level of cooperation did you have from the mining companies in the preparation of this paper? We wrote to uh, most of the companies, we wrote to any company that was substantively covered in the report to engage with them, and we did receive some lengthy responses. Cooperation is a strong term, but but we um we you know we did receive responses from the companies. We considered those, and we made amendments where we felt like those amendments were necessary. Um, I think, as we mentioned in the report, we also received an injunction. Uh, from one of the well, we, uh, one of the companies involved in the report sought an injunction, and we did um, almost end up in court um, with that before the case was settled at the last minute. But uh, yeah, so the the um, the engagement with companies, you know, they expressed their displeasure with the content of the report in some cases, um, but also provided additional information and perspectives which, you know, as responsible people writing a piece of research, we considered very carefully and very closely and reassessed everything in light of that and where we thought we needed to change something because something in our first draft was inaccurate. We did that. Also a role for the Australian government, especially considering, considering the long history of Australian government in Bougainville and Australian companies in Bougainville going right back to the 19th mm. century? Yeah, there is a, it, it, the role of the Australian government is really important. I mean, obviously, Bougainville was, you know, a, a, an Australian colony at, at one point and it was the Australian administration that was involved in first approving the Panguna mine. So Australia obviously has, a, you know, a very, had a very big role to play in the, the Civil War, which ended, um, did end up in the, you know, the deaths of 15 
thousand people is an is an estimated number there. So um, Australia's role throughout Bougainville's history has been quite significant, including in the war itself as well. The Australian government now is a, an aid provider to Bougainville, um, and you know talks about the importance of seeing a, a strong, secure, and stable Bougainville through the aid program. But we'd like to see. Australia's role really extending beyond kind of the diplomatic and aid-based role and thinking about what Australia's role is as a regulator of its own corporate actors because obviously Australian business people when they're operating overseas are in some ways almost like ambassadors for the country and so when we see Australian business people overseas in um, in Bougainville, Australian companies overseas in Bougainville um, engaging in conduct that we feel falls below the standard of responsible corporate behaviour We'd like to see the Australian government doing a bit more to regulate that corporate behaviour here, and that's you know that's just as important as any aid role that it's playing. And an important role for the autonomous government. It hasn't been in very long. Yeah, that's right, and it's obviously a key. You know, it's a key time for the autonomous Bougainville government. Then, um, in the they had the independence referendum in 2019, and following that referendum. Um, they're now in a process of further discussions with PNG. Um, those discussions have a timetable of, of 2025 to 2027 to ratify that independence referendum and come up with what, what both sides are referring to um, as a, a political settlement. But obviously in that move to what might end up becoming independence for Bougainville, the Bougainvillian government does have a lot of a lot of difficult decisions to make in terms of revenue sources, the Bougainvillian economy, building governance structures in Bougainville, and obviously, you know, as, as I said earlier, I think um, we shouldn't underestimate the strength of governance in Bougainville. The autonomous Bougainville government is relatively new, but it is also strong. But there are a lot of things still to do if Bougainville is to become independent. And there seems to be delays in that becoming independence put forward by the PNG government? Yeah, the process has taken um, some time. So obviously the the independence referendum was in 2019. We're in 2022 now and the dialogue between Bougainville and PNG is still happening. And obviously, you know, within PNG, commentators have observed that there are concerns around uh, the risks of, from a PNG perspective, if they let one province go, will other provinces want to become independent, etc. But, you know, on the other hand, the referendum result was unequivocal, 97.7% in favour of independence. So there's also going to be a fair amount of pressure on PNG to ratify that in Parliament and to, you know, give Bougainville the independence that it so clearly desires. Well, it's a lengthy and a very detailed paper. What are your conclusions and recommendations? Yeah, well, for the autonomous Bougainville government, we really think that it's important, as I, as I mentioned, it's a really critical time, and it's really important that in making decisions about whether or not to reopen mining in Panguna, um, that the government and, and landowners undertake detailed due diligence on any corporate partners seeking mining and exploration licences, and also that landowner companies are supported to obtain independent advice to ensure that their rights are protected and that the environment is protected and that any reopening of Panguna should be based on a really detailed cost-benefit analysis. So, you know, an independent analysis of what are the potential environmental impacts, what are the costs, and if we're going to partner with a company, have we done our due diligence to make sure that they will also safeguard and steward human rights and the environment? 
And we've also got a set of recommendations for Australia because, you know, as we've said, we've seen Australian companies operating below a standard that we feel reflects responsible corporate conduct and we'd like to see Australia having mandatory human rights due diligence legislation to try and compel companies to put human rights front and centre in their operations. And we'd also like to see the Corporations Act and other Australian laws placing responsibilities on companies and directors to avoid causing economic, social, cultural or environmental harm and better corporate transparency. You know, we talked about transparency earlier in this interview. It's so difficult to find information about some of these companies and stronger regulations in Australia like a beneficial ownership register or other transparency regulations would really help when communities overseas are trying to make important decisions about their natural resources. I know it's early days, but have you had any response yet? It is, it is early days, yeah. We, um, we, but we are, we have supplied copies of the report to the Bougainville government and, and are hopeful for a dialogue there. And we're also hoping to be able to have a dialogue with government here. So, um, yeah, I mean, in, initial signs hopeful and, um, and we do hope that the recommendations will be taken seriously and that we will have an opportunity to continue to engage on these, on these issues and to continue to, you know, propose solutions. And of course, when we're looking at paper concerning increased mining on Bougainville, there are many, many people on the island who don't really want to go that way. They want to look to fishing, to agriculture, to other ways rather than mining. Are they going to have a voice anywhere now? Yeah, I think, um, it's a, look, it's a great point that in all the, the discussion on mining, the issues around all of the other many, many possibilities um, for different economic pathways in Bougainville do get overlooked. So it's good that you raised it. I think Bougainville's obviously got it's got very valuable fisheries resources. It's got tuna. Um, it's got an existing some existing cash cropping like cocoa and copra. And there's a lot of possibility for expansion of things like agriculture. You know, which is like agriculture is a great example of a sector that um, it's not just a cash generating sector, it's also a poverty alleviation sector. It's a, um, a sector where, you know, money that comes in from agriculture spreads really well throughout the economy, um, as opposed to money that we see from mining, which in many cases doesn't deliver significant development benefits on the ground, um, even when it delivers revenue benefits. So, yeah, I really think it is important that those conversations about other alternative economic pathways aren't forgotten in the conversations about mining and, and whether or not to reopen Panguna and the role of mining in Bougainville. And I know that there are plenty of people within Bougainville also having those conversations as well. And just finally, the healing process for the many, many on Bougainville who lost family lives, who lost their livelihoods, who still suffer from the Panguna mine. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It's, it's, a, it's a really good thing to bring up. I think even though the war, civil war, ended in 2001, the wounds of the past take a really long time to heal. The, the war killed an estimated 15,000 people, potentially more, and a lot of families and communities are still grieving, still healing, and also still building peace and repairing the wounds of the past. So I think the peace building process is not it's not completed. It's still an ongoing process in Bougainville, yeah. And the report can be downloaded? 
It can, it can. So it can be downloaded from the Jubilee Australia website, which is www.jubileeaustralia.org. And yeah, encourage everyone to have a read. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Jan. And I've been speaking with the spokesperson for the report, Scramble for Resources, the International Race for Bougainville's Mineral Wealth, Fight Strong. Do have a look at Jubilee Australia's webpage. And these are the stories and issues that you're most unlikely to know about if you concentrate on the mass media. So it just shows how important 3CR is. That number to ring for a donation, 9419 3CR Radiothon 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. 3CR Radiothon fundraiser, June 2022. To donate, call 03-9419-8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep community strong. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail laws now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Eastern Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Hi gardeners. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the Gardening Show's annual Radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 26th of June, from 7.30 till 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show on air. As usual, we'll have great deals on seeds, organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and of course new and used green focused book titles. Or simply make a tax deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio and The Gardening Show. Please dig deep for the 2022 3CR Gardening Radiothon, 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 26th of June. The first round of the Colombian elections were held last month with leftist former guerrilla Gustavo Petro gaining 40%. Federico Guterres, the right-wing former mayor of Medellin, widely seen as a continuation of the current government of long-term President Ivan Duque, only picking up 23%. And Rodolfo Hernandez, a business magnate, 28%. The second runoff will be held next Sunday between Petro and Hernandez. But I think it's important to look back on events in Colombia in recent years. And to do that, I spoke with David from the group United for Colombia. David, decades of civil war in Colombia ended with the signing of a peace deal in 2016 a war that claimed an estimated 26,000 dead and displaced 7 million people. 
and the majority of the violence was attributed to the state forces and their paramilitary allies. But the signing of the peace deal didn't end the violence. What has been happening since then, and who are those who have been targeted, and by whom? Colombia, you know, have like a civil war for years and years. As you said, we signed the peace, but most of the people thinking that was the biggest problem in Colombia, but uh, no, the biggest problem in Colombia is corruption and government. That is a really big problem there. So for Colombia, we know we are in a civil war, but it's more business war, actually, because the government needs to work, needs to people still fighting each other, killing each other. The people do these things. They offer to the people, like, that's the real problem in Colombia, but no, in Colombia there is another problem, like, poor people, uh, a lot of, it's more economy things than real problems. It's not, not like the people thinking that, you know, people uh, disagree with the government and want to, you know, fight. No, it's not like this. So what happened after the time? The government started to kill people, like social leaders, like scientists, uh, most of the guerrilla groups, like, now they are like a civil people. Normal, all of them is just working or, you know, try to keep a better life, but most of them are killing by the government. So what is the problem at the moment? So we don't have a really peace in Colombia. It's that it's supposed to be we having peace, but no. So still a lot of violence, a lot of kidnapping people. So every day it's, it's a, a really bad news about someone pass away, someone is killed, someone is murdered by the government because he's a social leader or whatever thing. But that's a very important thing like, like we need to know. It's not just guerrilla group. Uh, it's like a, uh, it's a hard, you know, but it's like, it's more, more government than guerrilla group. The government always say, no, the biggest problem in Colombia because we have a guerrilla. We have a army group, illegal army group, like paramilitaries, uh, FAR, ALN, all these all this kind of groups. But in the end of the day, it's not. It's not. And the people at the moment, the people know it's not just the guerrilla, the guerrilla group. There's more another topic and another thing like the other issues like we have in Colombia in the sense in the situation like we have at the moment. So what happened until now? Nothing changed at all. Just signing, yes. We have some point like supposed to be we had to do a fight this year. But it's not it's not gonna happen. So why now fighting for change this government and change this thing? Because we hope the new government make a not new agreement with the guerrilla group but try to to make a, a new deal with them and start to do all the things that the the sign of peace said all the documents said they start to working on it because at the moment just killing people like that's it it's nothing at all mm-hmm. most of the people that are in some places and like peace places i don't know i can't remember the the exactly name these are like like areas all the guy go there without arms start working on it. Yeah, but every time that one of these guys get out to the town or back to the family, the paramilitary group or we don't know really the the criminal group kills them. And the government didn't say anything. The government didn't say anything. The government just said we are working on it. It's not because they was all guerrilla, it's like personal problem. Actually two years ago a minister, the the femme minister say, No, it's just not connecting with the violence or or social problematic in Colombia. No, it's not about it. Just like like personal problems, like a wife and husband fight each other and someone kill them for that. But no, of course it's not. It's just you know something like planificate really well, and that's why 
we keep working on it and peace in Colombia. We're still working on it. Is most of the violence against the people in the cities or is it in the rural areas? I think it for me is more rural areas. Cities is like, of course there is violence in every place in Colombia, for everywhere. But it's more in rural people, more like farmer people, uh, you know, people living in the mountain, far away from the city, no communication, no roads, nothing. Most of the people live in this situation at the moment in Colombia. It's more hard for them than the people living in the city. Because we don't have anything. Even government is not go there. Send army groups to fight in each other, and always the communities are in the middle. Always the communities are in the middle, and normally all the people passed away in this situation is civil people. Because if you see the, like, the number of people killing in all this world for years, most of them are civil people. No like guerrilla or, or army groups, no, just the civil people. But yeah, for, for me, it's more hard for rural areas. Just as an aside, David, you are from Colombia. What was life for yeah. you? When did you leave Colombia and why? Most of the people thinking I left the country because I have, yeah, my life wasn't risky many times, many times. I have a, a lot of, we call them pamphletos, like someone writing and say, if you don't leave the country or you don't leave the city, we killed you. I never did for that reason. It was more economic than personal reason. I want to start studying few things. I need a better economy, and I found the opportunity to come into Australia. But uh, even I just was was like one year, like holidays year. No holidays, working, but don't do nothing too much about social things. But in 2013, we started with our own organization, United for Colombia organization, and with this organization. We start support different communities in Colombia, different organizations in Colombia. We make some rallies here. We do some, you know, protests here, talking about problematic in Colombia, issues in Colombia against the government. We always supporting like social leaders. We did like many activities like before COVID, of course, about talking with the people against to the why the government killed social leaders, why it's important they were not, what happened in Colombia, what really happened in Colombia. But yeah, for me it was more personal thing, no, because my, my life was in risk. I know now if you are back to Colombia, it's still in risk because it's still the same. Actually, for me now, it's more hard to be a social leader in Colombia than before, because now we have again, like the right government, but extremely right, they doesn't care too much people, and that's it, you know, it's like, but yeah, I'm still working to try to make a better country. There's been a lot of demonstrations, both inside Colombia in recent years, and also, particularly in Australia and other countries, has there been yeah. an escalation of killing, say, in the last couple of years? Has it got worse? Yeah, it's worse, yeah. They actually... When the Santos, the ex-president, we were like eight years, like quite good. I can't say perfect, but quite good. It was violence, but not after the science speak. In the last four years, it's like real, it's up. If you see the date, the number is every year more and more and more, more massacres, more. They, they say like systematic killer, like one guy here, two guys here, three guys here. A lot of people, you know, kidnapping, and we don't know where they are. 
the biggest protest last year, and uh, we call it a social explosion or something. The, the social rally, the biggest rally was in Colombia for like almost three months. The people on the street, a lot of people passed away. The day, I think it's like more than 150 young people passed away from this protest. More than 300 still kidnapping. Yeah, for me, it's grown up. Grown a lot. So the numbers every time is more and more and more and more. The last two months is quite not that much, but uh, last year, the year before, was a lot of people. Especially when this government started so soon. Duke started our president at the moment. Ivan Duque started, every day was worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. Especially for like social leader, environment leader, like the people working for the climate change, for you know, for the nature, all these things. For them, the ambientalist people, it's very, very, very hard working in Colombia because the multinationals and many other international biggest companies doesn't care the life of these people. Just, you know, if they are fighting for their right to kill it, that's, that's normal the rules, especially in rural and rural areas in Colombia. How important for those governments is the support from the USA? Yeah, still, they still receive a lot of support, but that support is like, as more business, the United States government say, like a support. They just give it again, more work, and glyphosate, that's the support. And they put in a lot of million dollars for keeping the world. Nothing at all. Nothing changed. Nothing changed. It's a lie for me, just keeping the world. Make a conflict, an internal conflict in the country. Not just in Colombia, many countries in South America. For me, that's the support like the United States do for all South American guys. Making the world, making more conflict, making more problems. Well, into this situation came the election in May. Can you talk about the major contenders for that and what the result of that first round of elections was? All right, so at the moment we have two candidates before it was more than six and now we have the, the second round, it's the 19 of June. First thing I have to say, we are happy because our candidate, Gustavo Petro, he got like 8.5 million votes, that's good. It's the first time the, the left win the first round was in May. I'm, I'm really happy for that because that means most of the people wake up in Colombia, start to thinking and really change our situation. But the other candidate, supposed to be his center, he's not right, he's not like he's supposed to be center, he don't have a agreement with supposed to be anybody. But it's not true because as soon as he gets to the second round in June for the next election, most of the corrupt people are with him at the moment. Uh, most of the Baroque people support him. So what we need now, we'll try to work in a lot, like try to win in this second round and get a, and get like Gustavo Petro and Frente Market get a president. Why? Not because they are right, they are left. it's because these people for all the entire life fighting against a lot of bad situations in Colombia. They're fighting against corruption, they're fighting against the traditional government, the the world even so the, this kind of leader because for me they're a leader people it's not just candidate a leader people that's the people we need working with them to make it a better country so what happened now we don't know until june until 19 of june we don't know supposed to be all the numbers say we win supposed to be but in colombia in the end of the day 
the electoral commissioning, they take the last word, you know what I mean? Most of the people go to vote, make a choice, but we don't know after 4.30, after 4.30 p.m., just is the government to decide who is the next president. In this case, supposed to be, there is less corruption than before, but uh, it, it's not true. But we hope, like, we win in, in, in one week, actually. Uh, yeah, we are really excited for that. We're waiting all these things. We know if this guy wins, it's not like a coming peace in Colombia, everything is fine. No, actually, we know it's worse. Because I think the worst in Colombia is getting worse than before. But uh, we need to work it. We need to try to. We need to uh, make it strong to support all these things and try to, you know, keeping in mind it's not easy to change a country like spend like years, like 100 years, the same government doing always the same thing. I understood that in Colombia there were two parties, the what you could call maybe the conservatives and the liberals who swapped over. Yeah, how, yeah. But, 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 but how come there is space this time for someone from the left? And could you tell us a bit more about Pedro? Yeah, Pedro is not like liberal and not conservative. It's more than 20 years ago. Before, it was just two parties. You know, left and right, liberals and conservatives. That's it. And now we have a more more party, you know what I mean? Like Green Party, similar like Australia, like Labour Party, things like that. Like a polo democratic, similar like in Australia, like Labour Party. The Green Party is the same like here, you know. Petro making their own, he, he calling like a, a historic agreement, in Spanish is Pacto Histórico, like a historic agreement. That's like his party at the moment. And this party is made by different parties, people from left, but the different party, Green, a Labour Party, Union Party, different indigenous party, yeah, different, uh, even a black community party. So this is making like one biggest thing, like they call it Pacto Historico. So Petro is part of this project, and that's why it's very important, because all we know now, we got a like biggest group in the Senate and the Congress to support his idea, because in the end of the day, if you don't have people in the Congress, uh, senators or Senate or, say, the people in the Camera, it's nothing to have a, like, a president like Petro, because everything like he wants to do, the Senate say no. But at the moment, we have a, we are majority in the Senate. So that's good for us to get at that president, especially. The other president, the other candidate, Rodolfo Hernandez, he don't have anybody in the Senate. Anybody, just the, the, the right people, the same, the oligarchy and the corruption people, all these kind of guys still there. So when we're talking about Gustavo, his party, he was before part of the Polo Democratico, but the Polo Democratico was like left party. And then he started the last election. He was candidate too, he lost. And he created another one they call it Human Colombia, La Colombia Humana. And at the moment, the Human Colombia or La Colombia Humana make like El Pacto Historico, it's like the historical agreement to all these parties, to just working on it for a better. That's the the focus in this new government. Try to save the economy and make a support a lot of farmer people to make a like a new economies, not just petrol, because in Colombia we have two biggest economies, cocaine and petrol. Most of the people say cocaine, they say, yes, I know it's illegal, but it's the biggest economy in Colombia. There's a lot of million coming in from different countries about cocaine. And the other one is petrol. So 
So we want to change all these things. We want to use in our country like Judith because it's a beautiful country to visit. Judith things support uh, farmer people to plant in their own food. And we don't need to buy food for the other country. We can plant in our own food because our weather is a tropical weather. We have the same weather all year. So we can plant in the same food all year. We don't have to wait the station like here, like summer, winter, autumn. No, we have the same climate. Depends where you are, if you are in the mountain. So that's Petro. No, and they want to support this team, make a lot of effort to make it great, the, the farm and agriculture people in Colombia. Tell me about his running mate, Francia Marquez. Francia Marquez, she's a, a leader. She's poor. She's from community. She's black girl. She supports a lot of communities, and she was like 14 years old. She's a, a really good leader, fighter. She never was in politics before, the first time. I think most of the people have a lot of hope. First thing, because it's a woman that's very strong for us, a black woman. A poor girl because she's coming from the poor area. She's not like the common rich political people in Colombia because also most of the the political in Colombia is like victim families, victim system families, and always the same change the power. You get a president, you get a you know like change the power, but it's the same group. Now at the first time like this guy is as hard as they, that, especially Francia Marquez. Because for Francia Marquez, she was before just a social leader, fighting a lot, support communities, fighting again to the illegal army groups and their territories, things like this. She believed like we can change Colombia if we fight together and if we work in on it together to make a better country. So it's a, for me, it's a, a really good leader, leader. So and I hope they win and the next government she get in a president. No, because now she's back. She's the president, so I want to be in four years to get a, a president in Colombia because in Colombia there's no any more election, it's just four years. But I hope in the, in the next four years to get a, a president too. But let's see how we go. But yeah. And a win for them would have impact on the relations with Venezuela too. Yeah, supposed to be this government, if they win, they open again a communication and start to make a new relation because this government, the actual government, they broken out the relations with Venezuela. Because this government is like, they support a lot with the United States. If the United States don't do that, they don't do it. Even our country start talking about against to the war to Ukraine and Russia when we don't have fight. Yeah, it's a, it's a war problem, but uh, man, we have a lot of problems in our country to start to talking about other problems like uh, Colombia, like a paradise. This government broken, but the, the, even the both candidates, they start again talking with Venezuela to, you know, make a new agreement, make a new politics uh, be, between countries, because we need it. So Venezuela, in the end of the day, is our neighbor, and in our board, a lot of things happen every day. Most of the people go to Venezuela, Venezuela people come to Colombia, because it's not true, like, just Venezuela's people get out to the country. I know a lot of Colombians who move to Venezuela, because Colombia actually is not far about situation and economy than, than Venezuela. Even Venezuela don't kill a lot of social leaders like Colombia did. So it's quite embarrassing to use in Venezuela to say, oh, no, don't, don't vote for this guy because we're going to be Venezuela. No, it's not true. We are actually worse than Venezuela at the moment. But, yeah. I'm just wondering if and when Pedro wins, 
what the relationship with the U.S. will be. Most of the people are waiting, you know, because we don't know now. It's supposed to be Biden, sorry. Biden is a left guy. He's have a, like, few things about Colombians, like Petro wants to. I can say it's a good, it's a bad, because we don't know yet. They make a distance at the moment because he's a candidate. I know a lot of people in Colombia, they say it's going to be good for us because of Biden, but I'm really not sure. For me, Biden, eh, I have my, my my personal point about it. I think he's just different name in the same government. Let's see how we go. We hope it's good because in the end of the day, we need to, that country, keep in relation with us because few economies, not a lot of economy, but few economies. Because Colombia depends a lot of the United States at the moment, but we need to change no in progress, not like broken relations, but in progress. I know Petro started again relation with the other president in, in South America, like Boris in Chile, uh, this guy in Peru, Bolivia, yeah, March, all these kind of guys in, in Central America. Even with Maduro, he say he, we need to talk. We need to talk with them. We need to make any agreement. We need to start again relation with the other countries, especially in South America. That's that would be that I know. But with the United States, with Biden, let's see how we go. I don't know really if it's a good or no. We have to wait if he wins. What happened later? Do you have a vote, David? Yeah. yeah. How many Colombians do you believe are in Australia who will be voting for the second round? I, I think it, I think if we are for for election. I think it's three thousand. We can vote here in Australia. And the first round was just uh, they vote like sixty-four percent, something around one thousand five hundred more or less. But we expect more in the second round. But yeah, Petro win here for like twenty-six percent more or less. On top to the other candidates, actually, I, I say, I make a post and tweet it. I say, if we in Colombia happen, like in Australia, we got a, a president in the first round. But no, this was 40% in whole, in whole country and whole world. But a Colombia, uh, Petro won here in Australia with uh, 56%, 56.5% in votes. Uh, I, I know maybe we get more in this, in this moment. Because the, most of the people, our biggest opposition here was FICO, the other candidate, because that's the, like a right, right a political guy. But yeah, I think in our election here actually started Tuesday, Tuesday to, to Sunday. We hope most of the people actually listen to this program or listen to this interview and, and go, the, go this way to do democracy, like we say, make a vote and Make a good election. Make a good choice. Good luck, David. Okay. I've been speaking with David from the group United for Colombia about the results of the first round of elections, which were held last month, and preparing for the next round, which is next Sunday. Did you know that each donation over $2 you make to 3CR's Radiothon is tax deductible? That means that when you're doing your tax return business, you can claim your 3CR donation as a legitimate tax deduction. To make a pledge to this year's Radiothon, call the station on 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. 
3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. The fixation on profit is putting so many lives and communities at risk. Communities that are contributing the least to the increase of climate change, but are facing the worst of its impacts. We have had enough. We need a fair transition to renewable energy now so that every person has the right to be able to live safely wherever they may be. 3CR Radiothon 2022. Keep communities strong. To donate, call 03 9419 8377 or donate online at 3cr.org.au. Keep communities strong. wondering how you can pledge your support for a 3CR radio program during Radiothon? It's easy. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit our website at 3cr.org.au or you can even come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS or simply post us your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 in Collingwood 3066. And thank you for being part of 3CR's annual Radiothon. Up to a half a million West Papuans have died as a result of Indonesian occupation of that territory since 1962 and the deaths continue to this day. This is a country just to the north of Australia that many Australians might not even know it existed and for good reason, an almost total media blockout, whether sanctioned or not. This is the same country where Indonesia was responsible for over 100,000 East Timorese deaths in just the early years of their occupation, and many more died before they were driven out in 1990. And this is the same country where the new ALP government is promoting stronger economic ties, with Australian businesses raring to go, and for West Papua, the fear is that this means more business in occupied West Papua. Ronnie Carini is a West Papuan activist now living with his family in Canberra. And I asked Ronnie first to clean up some confusion. Some people talk about Papua, or other people talk about West Papua. Why the two names? Papua and West Papua is under Indonesia's legislation, breaks up the two into province. West Papua to the west and Papua province, Jayapura down to the south. Uh, Merauke. And so that was under the 2001 Special Autonomy. Those two provinces were divided up. But for many Papuans and Solidarity Network and um, the movement made reference to both as in West Papua. Why did they do that? Well, Indonesia already thought of in terms of administration, it would better help with that. But what we're seeing under the special autonomy law 20 years ago, that division of these two provinces or expansion has not really provided the administrative support on health, education, let alone 
the support that is needed on the ground where the provincial government have a greater role in implementing some of the things that were written within the special autonomy framework that the role of the Papuan people's representatives, which is um, under the special autonomy law, it's, it's a, a group that is comprises of the uh, indigenous leaders or customary leaders. And they couldn't have a say in that scope of um, this special autonomy law or within that framework. So to the provincial government. So it was really just on paper to divide these two uh, provinces, but decisions are made out of Jakarta. The provincial government and others have limited powers, but the real power is still resting with Indonesia. That's correct. Well, into this situation comes the directive to add three more provinces. Why? Yes, so 20 years later, in 2021, and that's part of the framework, it's 20 years, there's going to be a review, and the review focuses more on the funding. So within that period of 20 years, when they reflect back that there's a need for expansion of two provinces into five provinces, and within each province, the districts or regencies that needs to be also expanded. And so this is when in 2021, or prior to 2021, the part of the process within the special autonomy law, the process is that there's going to be a consultation amongst the indigenous Papuans through the customary council. We'll get the feedback or do a survey and bring it to the provincial government and the provincial parliament will combine all the voices from the indigenous people and then the civil society and then the provincial government as well have their say and then through the MRP, or the Papuan People Assembly, they will take it to the central government, to the parliament, and they will discuss and then make a decision based on those um, inputs. This didn't eventuate and so Jakarta actually breached the articles within the special autonomy law, and it, it was pretty much evident that um, in Article 76, 77, which says that this will be carried out, it never eventuated. Instead, the Department of Home Affairs and also the Political Security and Legal Affairs put a team together with a couple of government agencies, of course the military, of course those with foreign investments in interest in Papua, and that's it. That's when um, a quick decision was made and there was a proposal which in July of 2021 this push for three provinces. Within the 12 months period from that day, um, they have to pass a bill in the parliament, which they did just uh, recently in April of this year. Uh, the government has pushed for the funding and approval, and so it was, it's legislated. And so we are looking now into July that the implementation of the three provinces to be underway. And what will it mean for the people of West Papua? What it means for the people of West Papua, one, it's the marginalisation of the indigenous people. We're seeing increasing numbers of um, transmigrants coming through, which is undocumented. We're seeing increasing number of security forces or increasing militarisation in Papua, as well as 
foreign investment. So this is the greatest um, fear is that is this push for Jakarta to silence the aspirations of the people of West Papua. We are seeing that evidently, and it is a settler colonialism in West Papua that is happening right now, where these policies and legislations that are pushed through, it's systemic, it's racist in, in, that, in that approach that any voices from West Papua, even the current governor of uh, West Papua province and West Papua province will not be taken into any consideration. Even members of parliament, like from the provincial government, expressing concern about this process, but none of it taken into any consideration. So it only demonstrated that Jakarta have no interest in the well-being, in the human rights situation, or just everyday life on civic matters. But this is more about what Jakarta wants to create or push on this new settler colonial approach by this new um, special autonomy scheme. Does it also mean more resource extraction? Big time. Resource extraction is big time. And we just saw a couple of weeks ago the Prime Minister of Australia, Anthony Albanese, went there and he brought with him some of the executives from extraction industries as well as from the armed weapons companies to go there. And this is pretty much signing those deals. And as far as we know, particularly the Fortas company that is pushing on paper for renewable and big hydropowered projects. And West Papua, particularly in one of the areas where there's this big river flowing down, uh, Mambramu Raya, there's this massive river and they wanted to build this massive hydropower dam. And of course, these projects and yeah, it's businesses for foreign investors to serve as the export for Indonesia into the world. What do you know about the weapons manufacturing people that Albanese took with him? Yeah, so one of the executive uh, person from Thales Weapons Company um, also was part of this delegate, uh, delegation that went to Indonesia. And Thales has been um, known for exporting or selling arms, particularly the armed uh, vehicles, Bushmaster. And we've seen uh, Australia donate or supply that, sell that in 2016. We've seen as well some of the evidence of these um, vehicles used in Papua to combat peaceful demonstration and cases of Australian Defence Force training the Indonesian uh, anti-terrorism unit. And so this is really concerning when we hear about the new government talking about making things right and you know, focus on human rights and concerns on climate change yet they're bringing all these big extractive industries, um, executives to go there and just business as usual and signing up with the Indonesian uh, counterpart businesses to continue the programs in exporting those weaponry as well as Indonesian security forces training. And so this is concerning for us as West Papuans that um, such deal is not considering the impacts of that on human rights and and the message for us, from us as well is that 
any of these uh, bilateral trade or defense, cooperation should not come at the expense of the indigenous people of West Papua. When you say Australians training the special forces, the Indonesian special forces, is that happening in West Papua or is that happening here in Australia? It just so happened there's a, um, a centre that um, a lot of those training and funding in Jakarta, those training happens. But as of last year in September when the uh, 2 plus 2 bilateral meeting, which Defence Minister at the time, uh, Peter Dutton, now the leader of the opposition, and the Indonesian Defence Minister, notoriously known uh, what Subianto, Prabowo Subianto, have strengthened that defence cooperation and so the trainings taking place here in Australia, in Darwin, uh, which is some of the uh, strategic unit, the COSTRAD, and that after that deal was signed in September, in late December and to January of this year, we've already seen um, the training underway in Darwin where Indonesian special forces have come to Australian soil and been trained. Now, when you were talking about the new provinces, there have been widespread demonstrations since that was first announced. That's ongoing, isn't it? Yes. The the People Power Movement has been increasing since um, the preparations for this expansion of the new province and the people of West Papua have come out and strongly rejected this expansion of the new autonomous regions and the three new provinces and are calling for greater say in the future of West Papua, which is a process that there is a genuine dialogue that leads to have that referendum on independence. So that's kind of get the other call on this. But it has been since July of last year. And in recent months, it's increasing. Thousands have come out to the street and We've seen that in April, 1st of April. We've seen that on the 10th of May and recently on the 3rd of June, where it's coordinated under the Papuan People's Petition. And this petition, it's a, it's a network of 122 civil society uh, grassroots organizations led by youth. And basically, it's within Indonesia to Timor-Leste, as well as um, we are coordinating media as well in Australia pushing on in revoking this special autonomy. And on the 3rd of June, that was one of the biggest yet. And there's more conversations that we're going to still organize, mobilize to take to the street in, in July coming up as well to maintain our rejection of this current special autonomy scheme. And there have been deaths, and I'd imagine many people have been arrested, injured, not in good condition? Oh, yes. In in the rally, um, yeah, the 10th of May rally, there was quite a lot of um, injuries, bruised, um, and because the police used excessive force with water cannon and the police sticks, and really there was quite a few, and six were arrested in Jayapura. But on the 3rd of June, overall 44 were arrested and several or a dozen at least were also injured. That doesn't stop uh, many young leaders to really kind of come out again and organize and will take to the streets. How many of your young leaders are in jail accused of treason? 
at the moment, the high-profile one is Victor Yemo. He was accused of treason um, and also uh, kind of like the mastermind behind the anti-racism protest in August 2019. So he's still now currently in prison. There are three charges of treason that is um, placed against him. Or, um, yeah. There are also um, Sorong Six. There are six uh, minors. There are two or three that are over the age of 18, but mostly most of the others are minors. Pretty much, they were being um, arrested after the incident in Maibra, south of Sorong, about the ambush of the local pl- uh, police station there. And sadly, they were just at the wrong time when the police came in and took them as suspects, and they've been tortured ever since they've been um, arrested in October of last year and been under duress condition. And even the lawyers representing these um, six cases or the six young um, men, they're youths, basically, are also under immense intimidation. And so this has also now galvanized support around various human rights advocates groups to bring the voice of this lawyer as well that who is representing the Sorong Six at the UN Human Rights Council meeting which has convened or started on the 13th of June as of today. It's already started and so to really bring the the witness uh, um, statement and so there have been numerous reports submitted to the UN Human Rights Council about Victor Yamo cases, but also the use of their rockets, aerial bombing um, in Central Highlands. There are also reports of there's um, other political prisoners. And so we're hoping to really apply more pressure now for Indonesia, given that this year Indonesia is undergoing one of the 50 countries that will be undergoing the universal periodic review after four years. So this is something that um, we are building up a lot of um, advocacy around this now towards that um, universal periodic review for Indonesia. How long do these meetings of the UN Human Rights Council go for and when will you hear a decision? It goes for months. Like for the pre-sessions now, which is the opening remarks from the Human Rights Commissioner, Michelle Bachelet, starting also the 13th of June, it will go till the till July, and a lot of this will be pre-hearing. So they're bringing various states and non-state actors, um, organizations that have made the submission back in April. We did a lot of submissions back in April. So those that were uh, organizations that made those submissions can also now apply to have a say to justify or demonstrate their cases at this meeting, so it will go for this one month. So it's the preliminary hearing of those cases. And out of those cases, they'll bring, they'll identify six top um, uh, places uh, or speakers to speak of um, those issues. So it is also the hope that there were quite a few submissions made for West Papua, amongst many other yeah, places that also made those submissions. If West Papua comes up as one of the top six, then there'll be a, a representative to speak and summarize all this issue on West Papua. So that would be in July. And then it will go through a panel, ex- experts of panels, again, within the UN. And so it, it will be the um, experts uh, panel for indigenous people, or in, yeah, AMRIP, 
and they will also discuss that and then they will prepare statements and then it will go through the just the council of the human rights there are 24 members or 27 members within that will also discuss what are the six priorities and this will all culminate towards september of this year when the human rights council hearing and then all of this will be some a lot of recommendations which when indonesia appeared in november then this will be outlined, like each country will give their recommendations, like what they've observed and here, and then it will be brought up at the UPR. But at the same time, this report on human rights situation will be just prior to the UN General Assembly. So there's a lot of these meetings all kind of like uh, leading up from one to another. Hopefully bringing on a visit by UN officials to see firsthand what is actually happening in West Papua? That is the aim. And the UN expert panel, particularly um, the special rapporteur on um, human rights defender, even on the torture, as well as indigenous, there have been news coming out from the UN desk about West Papua case and also highlighting the fact that Indonesia, the timing of this visit, given that in 2017 they underwent the UPR, and in principle, they agreed for that to happen. And so that's why uh, the Pacific Island Forum leaders acknowledged that uh, Indonesia agreed in principle to allow that visit. So the communique that came out in 2019 of, with the Pacific Island Forum leaders meeting um, really included that, you know, that visit needs to happen prior to the next Pacific Island leaders summit, which is in July of this year. Time is running out, and there's no finalization of this visit. But what we see is that the African-Caribbean grouping of the 79 member state took upon their specific position for that visit, and they also um, agreed in their, in their leaders' um, meeting, and even the EU Commission also called for that, and even through this, uh, the Director General of the ACP uh, member st- states, and this has also followed up with within the EU, um, European Union Parliament as well, discussing the same matter. And until now, Indonesia is not binding for anything, but just buying time using the principle of uti possidatis juris, basically respecting its territorial integrity. And we see these statements comes a lot in Australia and also, last week when the foreign minister of New Zealand, Taroa, was asked about the security impact and human rights situation in West Papua, that's the repeating, like, yeah, repeating statement that we respect Indonesia's territorial integrity. And this is something that really now has to be challenged at the International Court of Justice about this principle of territorial integrity. Well, thank you, Ronnie. And I'd just like to finish by asking you, to talk for a minute about the Radiothon. You've had a long association with 3CR. I do, and I still continue to have this um, close um, engagement and association with the 3CR community, radio and the family, everyone at the station. And 3CR played a very critical role when it comes to an independent community-powered um, station. And as a volunteer programmer, and also one time um, staff member with the Tricia station. What we're seeing is this Tricia community radio has continued to strengthen 
the voices of the community, those that are, are marginalized in the mainstream media and those that their voice cannot be heard, like the voice of West Papua, it's hardly taken any um, hearing or, or given airtime, but to be part of the Tricia Community Radio. And speaking with you as well, Jan, it is amazing that, you know, big listeners and supporters can continue to hear the developments and what's happening on the ground, but at the same time being aware of the situation on West Papua. So Tricia Community Radio and your show as well plays that critical role in those times when um, helping the marginalized voices, uh, the voice of the voiceless to be heard. And it is important. So with the Radiothon this week, I'm also calling up for listeners and supporters to support this very show as well, because it continues to give a voice to the voice of the people of West Papua. And by speaking here, it plays a critical role because it, it continues to strengthen and build that strong community of uh, independent media. Great to talk to you, Ronnie, and we'll talk again. Thank you. And I would also wanted to say that I'm going to pledge $20 donation to the show as well. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that should inspire you to pick up that phone, ring in and donate to Tuesday Home Time. That was Ronnie Carini, West Papuan activist. No justice, no peace. No guns for police. 3pm, Saturday the 18th of June, State Library, Nam, Yendamu Elders in the Northern Territory have put out a call. No police guns in community. Stop black deaths in custody. Stop racism in the court system. End all discriminatory NT intervention powers. First Nations control now. These issues affect not just the NT. Here in Victoria, First Nations mob are still being racially profiled in the streets and the court system. People are still dying in custody and facing homelessness and discrimination. Time to end the violence. This is Aboriginal land. Sovereignty never ceded. 3pm Saturday, 18th of June, State Library. A 3CR supporter. great big hidden shining star in the broadcasting mist and it's at 3CR. The volunteers are a hit, the listeners have got grit and the programs present well above par. No crime, no time. Fix Victoria's bail loss now. Prisons are bursting at the seams with poor people. Istra Melbourne is calling on the Victorian government to release unsentenced people on remand from Victorian prisons. First Nations people are 3% of the population, yet represent 29% of the general prison population. 89% of First Nations women entering prison are unsentenced. Istra Melbourne is asking you to sign the No Crime, No Time petition, which can be found on Istra Melbourne's Facebook page. Indigenous Social Justice Association Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Keep community strong. Hi, my name's Kristen. I'm from the Anti-Poverty Centre um, and I'm a disability support pension recipient. My time is spent um, supporting and advocating for welfare recipients and most of the time in the media, the space taken up talking about our issues and talking about poverty in this country is people from corporate NGOs who don't understand our lives and don't understand the problems that we're facing. So I want to thank 3CR because they've been such staunch allies. They give us space to have meaningful conversations 
to really talk about these issues in depth and they do it, they've been doing it for a long time. They really need and deserve your support. Uh, so I hope if you can comfortably afford to do so that you'll donate to 3CR during the Radiothon. Give generously if you can. Thanks folks, bye. Go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03 8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. The Andrews Labor government is proposing alarming and draconian increases in penalties for peaceful protesting and citizen signed surveys in Victoria's native forests. The bill before the Lower House of Parliament doubles the penalties for non-violent direct action and citizens signed surveys in areas designated for logging or timber harvesting safety zones. Processing or disrupting native forest logging could be a 12-month jail or a fine of $21,000. The government says the protesters are dangerous, workers need to go home to their families at night, but those who care about the native forests say it's nothing to do with safety, but everything to do with preventing public scrutiny of the big forest activities. Also threatened are tourists, bushwalkers, firewood collectors and those conducting legitimate activities within logging areas. Now to the activists, of whom there are many, who are appalled at this bill in Parliament. It's true that people come into activism through many doors, but for Sue McKinnon, it was horse riding that brought her to full-on activism. I've been riding up at King Lake Forest. Before that, I was riding in Mount Disappointment Forest, the state forest, for many, many years. And um, it was a shock to hear that a beautiful area that I rode in was about to be logged in King Lake. And um, although I had actually campaigned for forest for uh, several years before this, um, I didn't realise it was so close to home and um, and I didn't realise it was in such well, beautiful, pristine forest. That's when I started being a, a full-on activist that moment. Were they big areas that they were planning to log? Uh, this area is about 35 hectares. They were intending to log uh, about 25 of those 35 hectares. You know, as, as I've come to understand over the years of campaigning that it's these 30 or 40 hectares that are being logged every day that uh, it makes a cumulative impact. It's, um, it adds up to about five football ovals per day in Victoria that's mm. being logged. And then, of course, there's the surrounding areas where the machines come in and the trucks come in and the damage that they do to the local creeks. Yeah, there's roads everywhere. There's road building everywhere to get to these patches. And all of that does damage as well and opens up the forest, isolates areas of forest, breaks it up. What's the flora and fauna in those areas that you spoke about then, King Lake and Mount Disappointment? King Lake and Mount Disappointment are mainly what we call mixed species. So there's different eucalypt species in most of that forest. There is another type of forest that is 
very popular for the loggers, and that's called mountain ash forest. And mountain ash forest tends to grow as the one species. It dominates the whole of the forest. Uh, very tall forest, very carbon dense. It's been recorded as the most carbon dense uh, forest in the world, except for mangroves. And mixed species forest of Victoria is close behind that in, in carbon density. There's, there's a little bit of alpine ash logged as well at top of the hills, um, the mountains in Victoria. Yeah, shining gum as well. Um, at the moment, Wombat State Forest is also being logged uh, and that, that would be mixed species as well. The mixed species is, I don't, I don't know if you know the eucalypt species, but tends to be mesmate, mountain grey gum and peppermint. Some illustrations, managum is also logged. Yes, yeah, so this patch in um, in King Lake that they were about to log when I got very, very cross uh, was mixed species forest, mixed eucalypt forest that had been burnt in the 2009 fires. It was completely charred, completely black, but it has completely recovered. So mixed species forest does recover from fire, unlike mountain ash forest, which basically starts again after fire. You wouldn't know it, except for the blackened trunks. You wouldn't know there'd been a fire there. It was, it was, um, it, it, it was just beautiful. It was shady, cool. Um, it had this lovely understory of you know, heath flowers and um, little shrubs, easy to walk through. Yeah, that was one of my favourite areas for riding. Had the animals and birds come back as well? Absolutely, yeah, um, and and that was the thing about this forest. Once once we realised they were about to log, we went in there and did greater glider survey. Asked um, a group because we weren't very experienced at that time, and asked a group called Wildlife of the Central Highlands to help us. And in that patch, we found ten greater gliders. We found before they logged, and they just continued to log. Then we found ten while they while they were logging. We just went in on the weekend during the night and we found 10 right through the area they were going to log. And um, I just continued to log. Uh, the presence of a greater glider made no difference back then. It does now because um, after <laughs> jumping forward a few years, we developed the King Lake Friends of the Forest after this logging and we ended up with uh, taking big frost to court because they don't protect greater gliders. And the court has awarded us an injunction, so big frost are not allowed to log anywhere in the whole of the Central Highlands, which is basically from Wallen across to Borbor and from Noogee up to Eildon. They can't log anywhere where there's a greater glider found. So this all, you know, it, it, it was step by step since 2019 when, when they first moved into that patch in King Lake and made a lot of people very angry. Just for those people who mightn't have heard the term or the word Vic Forest before, who is that or who are this organisation? Uh, Vic Forest is the entirely government, state government owned authority that is in charge of logging state forests or native forests in Victoria. They log, as I said, about five football fields a day. 
most of that forest stays on the ground. Uh, so about 60% of what they cut down is the tops of the trees and the lateral branches and the understory. And that all stays on the ground and is burnt about a year later. And of the amount of forest that they actually do remove off the mountain, just the trunks of the trees, 85% of that goes to make paper or cardboard. The paper and the cardboard industry is uh, mill is owned by Nippon Paper. Is it unique in Australia for a government to run a process like this? Yeah, in Australia, New South Wales and Western Australia both have government-owned, and Tasmania, they all have government-owned logging agencies. It's not a profitable industry. The profits are won by the milling companies, the companies such as Nippon Inc. that have um, arranged a contract with the government to provide wood at such a cheap price that the logging itself is not profitable. It runs at a, oh, it's about a $20 million loss this last year. Um, so no private industry would do it. And what does all this logging do when you put it all together for the sustainability of our native wildlife? Well, the cumulative impact has been the driving species to extinction. So the leadbeater possum has gone from endangered to critically endangered. Uh, the greater glider has gone from common to now threatened species and it's been considered for endangered listing. There are various other animals that are, are in decline. The most carbon-dense forest in the world is being converted to smoke and paper. So, of course, the emissions are very high. Um, it's been calculated by the Australian National University that if we put a dollar value on the emissions we could save by not logging, in the Central Highlands alone, that dollar value would be $48 million a year. It reduces our water, so because after you log, the forest grows back very, very thick and very, very thirsty. The amount of water that runs off into the Melbourne reservoirs is reduced, and also the amount of water available for the Golden Broken food bowl is reduced. Tourism is reduced. Um, you can't really visit regrowth forest. It's, it's just not accessible. Um, it grows back so thick and so dense. You can't get through it. If you push a track through it, it will grow back quickly. Um, it's not attractive to go to anyway. And the fire threat, the fire burden on the communities near logging is greatly increased because that regrowth forest is very, very thick and very thirsty and the air is very dry. It's basically a forest of kindling. And um, various research papers all show that um, logged forest is burns with higher intensity, higher speed, and is more prone to burning. Young, young regrowth forest is more prone to burning as well. There is a bill before Parliament at the moment, but prior to that, what rights do protesters have when they find that their environment is being destroyed in the sense that you've been talking about? Well, our voices are very much reduced. Big business seems to speak the loudest, such as Nippon Inc., the year, year of the government. The, for some strange reason, the CSMEU seems to be the mouthpiece 
of Nippon Inc. to to drive profits by extracting our forests. The government just um, wants to have the increased power by pandering to the CSMEU. Uh, so the citizens' voice, our concern for you know our forests being liquidated, essentially, um, our concern for climate and for water security, is greatly reduced in the face of extractive industries. All we have is our freedom of communication, which is implied in our you know Commonwealth democracy, and um, the Victorian Charter for um, Human Rights that protects peaceful protest. That's all we have. Frankly, <laughs> we need we need to do a lot more of it because we still seem to be battling. Uh, at least the most recent election has shown that people protesting and people making a loud noise about the destruction of our planet is making an impact now on what people are doing at the voting box. Can you talk about this bill that's before Parliament and I'd imagine that some people would say it's a very draconian piece of legislation. Yes. Of course, the forest campaigners, um, the climate campaigners are all saying it's, it's draconian, but also the Environment Justice Australia, the legal group, is um, appalled by it. And the, sorry, I've forgotten, the, the lawyers are undemocratic and new law that will have the penalty of 12 months jail for peaceful protest in forest. And when I say peaceful protest, I mean people people are protecting forest and carbon and water. I really am concerned about it even being called protest. It's, it's protection. Protection of our future, of our biodiversity, protection of animals from extinction, and it's our voice. And as a lot of other groups who are going to be excluded as well? It's not only peaceful protest or protection in, in a way that you know, is implied in those words. The protest comes in all different forms in the forest. It comes in the forms of like King Lake Friends of the Forest, Warburton Environment, Wildlife the Central Highlands, Foreign Fallen Research Collective. Friends of Leadbeater's Possum have all got legal cases against the government. That's the form of protest. Now, these new laws won't affect those. But peaceful protest also includes citizen scientists going out to find threatened species in the forest, threatened plant animal, plants and animals. And in a lot of cases, we don't know in fact, in all cases, we don't know where Vic Forests are going to move to next to log. And the only time we know that they are going to start logging an area is when they put up what is called a timber harvesting safety zone. And that is an area that excludes people from that area of forest. And these new laws are specifically designed to increase penalties for people going into these timber harvesting safety zones. And what's happened in the last few years is that people have seen a timber harvesting safety zone gone up. They realise logging is about to start. They go out at night and they find an animal such as a lead speeder possum. And a lead speeder possum requires 200 metres radius around it that can't be logged, which is insufficient, but at least it's a, a 10 hectares of forest that can't be logged. And this is happening time.
time and again. And those people have to enter timber harvesting safety zones to do so. This bill is targeted at that. Because of our case, our recent case, um, and, and this case is also being held by Environment East Gippsland and by Gippsland Environment Group, the judge in all of those cases has awarded injunctions against logging anywhere in a forest stand or a coop, as we guys call it, that has a greater glider in it or within 240 metres of it. So this has meant that, so in the past, when we used to find greater gliders in the forest, the forest would log it anyway. Trees that we found the gliders in, they would just log. So now, because of these injunctions, finding a greater glider means saving that area of forest. And so you can imagine that a lot more people have gone out into areas of forest to find greater gliders because we're desperate to protect the species and we're desperate to protect the forest. And in the future, if this bill goes through, the penalty for doing such, for going into a timber harvesting safety zone at night on a weekend and finding a greater glider could be quite serious. If this bill passes, doesn't it mean that the government is ignoring the court's decision? The court's decision is to rule out any logging where there is a greater glider seen in that coop or within 240 metres of that coop. I don't even like using that word coop, but it's a forest stand. So the detection has to be made first for that injunction to to kick in. So if the government can hinder people from making that detection, then it hinders people from protecting that bit of forest. Well, then, is this bill a reaction? This bill could be a reaction to that, absolutely, because certainly after the court case went through, there, there was a lot more um, activity in looking for greater gliders in the forest because suddenly we realised that we could actually protect this species from extinction. What support do you believe there is in the Parliament for your cause? It seems to be that the current government, the Labor government, is determined to keep logging our forest until 2030. They have made several changes. They've already made four changes in the law to allow logging to occur where it didn't occur before, so to increase the rights of loggers and decrease the rights of the environment. This will be a yet another change to make it easier for loggers to log or for Vic Forest to log and harder for the community to protect and reduce the environment, uh, the protection for the environment. The Liberal Party has also said it will support logging, and in fact it could support logging, I think, even before, beyond 2030. So the decision of the government to continue logging up until 2030 is basically a decision to liquidate our forest. There will be no more forest left state forest left that will not have been logged. Um, it will all be young regrowth forest. Given that, we assume that this law will go through. The hope is that there are some in the Labor government, some MPs in the Labor government that believe our human rights are being impeded and believe that the, the right of peaceful protest 
democracy is the heartland of our democracy and should not be impacted. In fact, it's, it's the very basis of, of the Labor movement was, you know, unions protesting for better wages and safer conditions that, um, that we hope that will, um, influence the Labor MPs to question this within your own party. I think it's a good time now for community to approach their MPs, particularly their Labor MPs, and say this should not go through. Yeah, that's all I can say. So what you're saying is this bill is against the right to freedom of expression and peaceful assembly, which is part of um, the Charter of Human Rights for Victoria. Absolutely, absolutely. It's implied in, in the Commonwealth Democratic uh, constitution as well. So what people need to do at the moment, well about the only thing that people can do at the moment is you're saying contact your local member and voice your concerns and state your point of view. Yeah, look, please do. If you make a phone call, that call is recorded. Just say you're against the amendment to the Forest Act and they'll know what that is. Environment Justice Victoria, the legal group, have got a petition going that people could sign that. That would be appreciated as well. And if people can please uh, can save our forest, joining a forest group near them or XR, a lot of the um, Extinction Rebellion groups are focusing on forest and just, you know, if people could... Put in what time they can now. Um, these next five years are, are critical to our planet. Thank you, Sue, and thank you for your work. Okay, thanks, Jenny. I've been speaking with Sue McKinnon, horse rider and activist to save Victoria's native forests. There are a couple of places you could visit to find out more. Environment Justice Victoria. Environment Justice Australia, the Human Rights Law Centre and if you scroll down on each of those places you'll be able to find more information about how you can help save Victoria's native forests from logging and do register your concern with your local parliamentarian and don't forget those penalties, 12 months jail or $21,000 for protecting the forests. And you can help protect 3CR too with a donation to the Radiothon. 9419 Please give us a call now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.